Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at WhitRiverside. Good morning. It is great to be with you this morning. This morning we're going to be continuing our Dangerous Faith series. We're now at week five of this eight-week series. And to be honest, I'm still really enjoying this series. And I'm a bit sad that it's going to come to an end at at any point, really, because I feel like I'm learning so much about uh, Christians around the world and the Acts Church. And it's really encouraging for me in this place where we are right now. So I hope it's also helpful and encouraging for you too. For the benefit of anyone who hasn't yet joined us for one of these Dangerous Faith talks, like we do each week, I'm just going to go over the aims with you so that we may understand why we're doing this and what we are hoping to achieve. So we, we set out three aims at the beginning of this series. The first aim was to get a better understanding of the birth of the early church and how the gospel spread and flourished even under persecution. The second aim was to deepen our own confidence in God's love and presence during our own times of suffering. And the third aim was to grow in our awareness of our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ and stand with them in prayer. So I hope that You feel like we're growing and we're achieving these goals as we go through this series. So in a minute, we're going to watch this week's video as Ron talks uh, to us about this week's topic. And then we're going to come back together to chat and discuss. But before we do that, let's pray. God, thank you that you are on the move. Thank you that wherever we are in our homes right now, you are with us by your spirit. Lord, will you speak to us this morning? Will we know more of who you are and fall more in love with you as we watch this video and chat together afterwards? In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine this scene. It's pitch black, dead of night. A man is levered out of a window into a four-foot-wide basket. It's maybe as high as 60 feet off the ground. It would be fatal if he fell. And the cane, woolen basket creaks under the strain of his weight. It crashes into vines and bushes growing on the wall on the way down. Maybe it's making too much noise, thinks the man sitting in the basket. Am I going to get through this alive? Is this my last night? Will my pursuers hear? Are they waiting for me at the bottom? After an eternity, through the darkness, the basket touches the ground and out leaps a balding man in his thirties. Freedom? Not really. He just scuttles away into the dark desert night. This is the Apostle Paul. This is going to be one of the most powerful men in history and look at him scuttling away into the night 
The Apostle Paul never expected to make an exit like this in his life. He was the son of a wealthy merchant from a big city, brilliant at studies, connected at the highest levels of Jewish society. A man of position and, and power. He had come to this city of Damascus with an ambassadorial status. He had a whole retinue of police and servants at his command, and in his bag he carried letters of diplomatic immunity to conduct religious cleansing. And yet, here he is, knuckles white as he grips the sides of the basket. He's no longer an ambassador, he's a fugitive. And see him scampering away into the night with nothing but his clothes. Oh, and a gospel recently discovered because Jesus had appeared to him in this city and transformed his life. Why is Paul in the basket at all? People are after him. He's on the run. And you can imagine him sitting in this basket saying, this God, he's dangerous to know. One moment I was heading for a glittering career as a rabbi, but now, after encountering him, I'm on the run for my life. And the people that had educated Paul and commissioned him to persecute Christians have now turned on him because he's changed sides. There is a sense in which every Christian has changed sides. And that's where the trouble comes from. Because when we turn to Christ, we are pursued by a whole host of forces that didn't take much interest in us before. And the world in which we live is no longer a playground. It's a battleground. Who's after Paul? Well, the Jewish leaders in Damascus. They're very annoyed because he's come to the synagogues, he's preached the gospel, and they weren't able to answer him. And they're jealous and they're mad. And so they're after him. They're going to silence him. It doesn't help, of course, that he's got a bit of a bit of a history. This is the city he was supposed to come to and get rid of the Christians. And here he is, speaking on behalf of the Christians. How galling for them. And there's another group that's after him too, because when Paul's talking about this incident later uh, to the Corinthians, he says that actually guards were waiting for him outside the city. The guards of the king of Arabia, King Aretas. And this is probably because, he tells us in Galatians, that early on he went to Damascus, encountered Christ, and then he left Damascus and went into Arabia for three years. And then he came back to Damascus. So something happened in Arabia to annoy the king and pursue Paul. Probably Paul was preaching. He usually was. And everywhere he preached, he got into trouble. So it seems that King Aretas has his guards outside the city because King Aretas's writ did not run into Damascus. Paul is getting it from both angles. Inside the city, the religious leaders are after his neck. Outside the city, the guards from a king are waiting to arrest him. All because he has an incendiary gospel. And so Paul learns early on that the life of faith involves being pursued and he was to be on the run for the rest of his life. This God is dangerous to know. 
And that's the meaning of the word persecution. It just means to be pursued. It's a verb. So we all sit in the basket with Paul. Something or someone is always after us, not because of who we are, but because of Christ in us. The great New Testament scholar, William Barclay, once said that a New Testament Christian has three characteristics. One, they were absurdly happy. Two, they were filled with an irrational love for their enemies. Three, they were always in trouble. Always in trouble. That's the default setting for any Christian. And Paul is to write later in his ministry that he expects every Christian to experience this pursuit. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, he says, will be persecuted. In 2 Timothy, he writes that. So, who's after you? Who's after me? If we sit in the basket with Paul, we have to ask, if Christ has enemies, then so must I. Sometimes the battle comes to us. But sometimes we have to take the battle to the enemy. Paul wasn't having to flee because he was a Christian. Paul was fleeing because he was a witnessing Christian. And we need to remember this. Jesus said, love your enemies. But he didn't say, don't make any. When you sit in the basket with Paul, you're always gripping the sides and saying, who's after me? Who's after me? Somebody should be. We all should be in that basket at some point. And if someone isn't, we need to gently ask ourselves, why not? There was a preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who once said, the devil doesn't waste his time flogging a dead horse. And the persecuted of the world will testify that when you experience that pursuit, strangely, you will count it as your greatest honor. Maybe it's time to get back into the basket with Paul and ask, who's after me? Brilliant. I don't know about you, but I've always been a little bit jealous of these crazy transformation stories. When people tell me their testimonies and it's one of those testimonies that makes your jaw drop, I often think, I wish I had a story like that. When you're alpha or a course like this and you hear about gang leaders and criminals who meet with Jesus and their life gets completely changed, flipped upside down. I watch those videos and I think, wow, imagine if my story was like that. Imagine if when someone asked me how I became a Christian, I was able to tell them that story. Imagine what it would be like for me to be able to proclaim this incredible testimony to everyone that I know. And I think it's easy to do that. I think it's easy to look at these kind of stories and be in awe of the story. 
be in awe of the excitement of what happened. And it's great. We should celebrate these stories. These are brilliant, brilliant stories. But sometimes we ignore that involved with these stories is often a lot of pain and a lot of rejection. From gang members who, when they meet Jesus, end up leaving the gang and get beaten up for doing so, to people whose family flat out reject them because of their faith. Often, people with these kind of testimonies, often when people tell of these testimonies, they're telling of a time where they've put a target on their own back. And Paul's transformation in the book of Acts is one of these incredible, incredible transformation stories. It is one of the best testimonies you are ever going to hear. But as we read about it, it's clear that it's also a testimony that ends up in his life becoming more dangerous and more painful maybe. Sometimes we need to force ourselves when we read scripture, when we read stories that we know well, we need to force ourselves to forget what we already know about a passage or about a character before we can read it with fresh revelation of what's going on in the passage. And the transformation of Saul to Paul, I think, is definitely one of those times where it's really helpful for us to forget about what we know about the person of Paul. Because we know so much about the church leader, Paul. And often we can forget the background. Often we can forget what Saul was like before he became Paul. His life before this moment, this incredible transformation moment when he met with Jesus. I find it helpful sometimes to think of what these characters, these characters that we know really well, what they would look like today if they were living on our earth right now. I find it helpful sometimes to say, what would Saul look like? What would the person of Saul, before he uh, had this transformation story, what would Saul look like in today's world? We know that Saul was a powerful man and he had a lot of status and a lot of responsibility. And basically, his job was to make Christians' lives difficult. His job was to force Christians out of the cities and his job was to kill Christians. If I was to place him in more recent-ish times, I would suggest he's a bit like these communist leaders of the concentration camps in China that we've been hearing about over the last few weeks. Or alternatively, maybe he's a bit like a terrorist leader of an organisation like ISIS. To say that he was a bad man before he met with Jesus, before he had this transformation. To simply say 
that he was a bad man is simply missing who he was. Saul was a terrorist. But in being this powerful terrorist, a terrorist leader, he was surrounded by other terrorists. He was surrounded by others who hated Christians, who made it their life's purpose to kill Christians. Which meant that for Paul, for Saul, to choose to follow Jesus would have been very painful and very scary. And I think that's what makes this story of his transformation even more outrageous. Paul really did have an incredible transformation story. He hated Christians. He was surrounded by people that hated Christians every single day. And then one day, whilst on his way to Damascus to force out the Christians, to possibly kill Christians, on his way to persecuting Christians, something happens that flips everything upside down. We read in Acts 9 verses 3 to 5 about this transformation and I'm just going to read it now. As he neared Damascus, talk about Paul, on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Saul meets with Jesus and suddenly everything is flipped on its head. And in this moment, Saul decides to follow Jesus. He decides to say yes to Jesus. And then everything seems to be 100 miles an hour for the next few days and probably for the rest of his life. Saul is blinded in this moment of transformation, but continues his journey to Damascus where he was originally going to persecute the Christians. And whilst he does this, whilst he's on his way to Damascus, blinded, this transformed Saul, a man called Ananias hears from God. And God speaks him. We read about it a bit later in that chapter, in verses 15 and 16. It says this, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. This man is my chosen instrument. In the matter of days, Saul had gone from being this mass murderer of the Christians, this lead persecutor of the Christians, to God's chosen instrument to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. I bet Ananias was fuming when God told him this. Why have you chosen this horrible, disgusting, vile man 
when so many people have been faithfully serving you? But Ananias says, yes. He says, I'll go. I'll do what you have told me to do. So full of fear of the terrorist Saul and probably anger that he was going to help Saul and not to avenge him. Ananias listens to God and goes to find Saul and God uses him to heal Saul. And God uses him also to lay hands on Saul that he'll be filled with the spirit and Saul is baptised. This is a pretty full on couple of days, if you ask me. And to top it all off, days later, Saul is preaching in Damascus. The place where he went to kill, he is now preaching. But this isn't the only thing that's changed in Saul's life. It wasn't just his job that had changed. It wasn't even just his beliefs that had changed. His whole life had been flipped upside down. I said a minute ago that Saul would have been surrounded by like-minded people. People that, like him, hated the Christians with a passion. People who wanted to kill all Christians. These people were Paul's friends, were Paul's family. So when Paul chose to follow Jesus, he knew that his life would never look the same because he'd seen it from the other side. He'd seen the lengths that people would go to to get rid of the Christians, to kill the Christians, to drive them out of the cities. So when he chose to follow Jesus, he knew that he would be in constant danger. He knew that old friends would now want to kill him. And he knew that he was now rejected by everyone in his old life. Saul went from being this powerful persecutor to being the main target of persecution, all in the space of a couple of days. It's easy for us with our Western experience, with our Western minds, to read this story of Paul's transformation and think, wow, wow, that is such an unusual story. That is crazy how Paul, Saul, would be completely rejected by everyone. That Saul would, in following Jesus, be putting a target on his own back that Saul would be going from one extreme to another even though he knows of the consequences. It's easy for us to read that and think that is an extraordinary story. But it isn't. There are many Christians throughout the world, even today, who have given up safety, who've given up power and have even given up family for persecution and rejection in order to follow Jesus. In many Muslim countries, turning away from Islam 
and turning to to Jesus is as dangerous for them as it was for Saul to turn to Jesus. Many Christians around the world know exactly what it looks like to have to leave the comfort behind and take up danger in order to follow Christ. So I guess the first question that we need to ask is what drives these people? Saul, the people today, Christians today in in, uh, Muslim countries, What drives these people to choose a life of persecution? And I think we all know the Sunday school answer. The Sunday school answer is Jesus. And in this case, the Sunday school answer is not wrong. It's the infinite worth of knowing Christ Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Many of us would have heard the amazing quote from uh, famous Christian uh, missionary Jim Elliot, who said this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And in the letter to the Philippians, Paul said something pretty similar. He said, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. I think this verse, for many of us, is really difficult to fully understand because we could agree theologically and even logically. Of course, the finite things on earth are meaningless in comparison to the infinite relationship with Jesus. But have we really ever had to live that out? Because what Paul is saying is his achievements in life, he counts as nothing in comparison to knowing Jesus. And what Jim Elliot is saying is, let's be honest, Nothing in life really matters other than saving up eternal gain. The reason I say that for many of us, including me, this is so difficult to understand is because relatively speaking, there is very little that we have had to lose in order to follow Jesus We've listened to stories over the last few weeks of Christians around the world who have devoted their lives to God, even though they know that in doing so, they're putting a target on their back. For me to understand what that feels like, what that is like, is impossible. Because my story of faith couldn't be any more opposite to people who have gone through this. My story of of faith couldn't be any more opposite to Saul. Because in reality, I probably would have upset more people in choosing not to follow Jesus than I have by following him. 
And I think this is why, to be honest with you, I've struggled a little bit with this week's video. I've struggled to relate to it. This idea of Paul trying not to be seen and being passed around in a basket is incredible. But it's so different from any experience that I have had in being a Christian. And Ron made a point in the video that Jesus was pursued his whole life, that Paul was pursued. And he concludes that if we are to live a godly life, we should be being pursued by someone too. And I watched this and I thought, but Ron, enemies are quite hard to come by here. People don't pursue us in the same way simply because we're talking about our faith. And to be honest, do we really want enemies? How do we wrestle with our reality alongside what it says in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, where Paul says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, firstly, let me say this. I don't think we need to be searching for enemies. We shouldn't be seeking enemies. We don't need to seek persecution. It isn't correct to simply say more persecution on earth equals more holiness, which equals a better house in heaven. But if we are following Jesus, we are being pursued. We are being persecuted. Because like Ron said in the video, we are in a battleground. We are being pursued by the enemy. And one of the tactics of the enemy for us Westerners is to make us forget that we were ever in a battle. It's to make us forget that we're in any kind of battle. In the Eastern church, they know they're in a battle, so they bring everything before God. In the Western Western church, often we forget we're in a battle, so we try to do things ourselves. So if we're in this battle, surely there's something that the enemy is trying to do. Surely there's something that the enemy is trying to achieve. What is it? What is the enemy trying to achieve in us? In what way are we being persecuted by the enemy? Well, what he wants to do is he wants to take our eyes off Jesus. He wants to distract us in any way possible from God. He wants us to have as little kingdom impact as possible, to be too scared to follow what God tells us and to be too comfortable to truly live for him. That's that's why the enemy loves it when we sin, because sin affects our relationships with others and it affects our relationship with God. But we're in a battle and that's why Paul talks about the armour of God later in his ministry. Paul tells us how we fight against persecution from the enemy. Ephesians 6 verse 11 
to 18 is where he talks about this. I'm going to read it now. Put on the full armour of God so, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. There's a challenge here to remember that we're in a battle and to be prepared in God. But I also think there is a second challenge around this story in this week's video. And to be honest, this challenge is definitely a challenge to myself as much as it is to a challenge to anyone else. In fact, the reason I'm saying it really is because this is what challenged me about this, about this video most. And maybe it might also challenge you. Because often I realise that often I am driven in my faith and in my decisions by a fear of very mild persecution. Maybe it's rejection or people not liking me, thinking I'm stupid or being laughed at because of my faith. And I think sometimes that's what stops me from being more avert about my faith to those I walk past on the streets and with my friends. And I often challenge myself, I say, Jake, if you actually believe what you say you believe, if you actually want to live a life following Jesus, Jake, if you actually want other people to know him, then why do you let the fear of rejection, of being disliked and laughed at, stop you from doing something that could have eternal value from my friend? Or my neighbour. Jake, if you really did count everything on this earth as meaningless in comparison to the eternal worth of knowing Jesus, then why is it that you are driven by the possibility of extremely mild persecution here on earth? And I think this is why I have the utmost respect for Christians around the world who choose to follow Jesus and spread the gospel, even with this real possibility of persecution, of torture, of death, and of being rejected by their family. What am I not doing because I'm scared of the smallest amount of persecution? Who am I not talking to about Jesus because I'm scared of how they'll respond? Would I be able to swap place even for a day with a Christian 
who lives under the regime of persecution. And I guess what I'm wanting to do is to invite you as I challenge myself with those very deep, challenging questions. I want to invite you to challenge yourself too. What would it look like to be living a life that's content about the fact that at some point persecution may come, but with a reminder that God is so, so worth it? What am I not doing because I'm scared of the smallest amount of persecution? Let's pray. God, thank you that you are so worth it. Thank you, God, that anything here on earth is meaningless in comparison to the incredible fact that we can know you and be with you for eternity. Lord, I pray that you help us to have a kingdom mindset. Lord, to care less about ourselves and our situation and to care more about how we're glorifying you. Lord, we're sorry for the times where we do let the concept of mild, mild persecution get in the way of us doing things that please you. We pray that you'll give us more of your spirit, that we'll have the confidence to go out and to be your hands and feet and not to shy away from doing these things. Will you fill us up with the confidence, Lord? Fill us up with the boldness that we may go and make a difference. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at WhitRiverside.